Well, welcome to Wednesday night as we are soaring through scriptures here tonight. Looking at our Bible overview tonight, we're in Ecclesiastes. So turn in the Bible to Ecclesiastes. And I, I don't know why, but I've just been loving this book lately. And I'm looking forward just to kind of going through it here tonight and examining a lot of different things and just kind of seeing the heart of, of Solomon uh, in this here. And for some of you, Ecclesiastes hasn't been one of those books that you've done a lot of reading or studying in, so some of this might be very new to you tonight, and that is all good and all right, and I hope that after tonight here, we're going to really just have a, a more clear picture of Ecclesiastes and the, the point of Ecclesiastes, what's being written in Ecclesiastes, because there's a lot of odd things that we're going to see here, but when you begin to see kind of the purpose and the heart behind it, it begins to make sense, and we begin to see just a lot of great applications and truths for us. Now, First of all, um, look at who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. If I didn't already say it in my intro here, it's, it's Solomon, all right? David, King David's son that wrote. And it says right there in verse one, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So right away, Solomon kind of identifies himself. We also see in verse 16 that it says, I communed with my heart saying, look, I've attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. So right away, we know, again, Solomon, right? Though he's not mentioning himself by name, we begin to see these clues here that is being written there. Verse one, verse 16, that really make it clear. I mean, we know Solomon, the great wisdom that he was given by God himself. And God asked, anything that you want, Solomon will give it to you. And Solomon didn't ask for for riches or fame, but rather for wisdom to rule his people well, and God blessed him abundantly. And then it shows in, in chapter 2, verse 8, that this author here who's writing this had great wealth. So again, just fitting the description of Solomon so well. Now, Solomon, we know, we've been kind of in this series right now, Wednesday is going through some of this Solomon literature here. He's also written the book of Proverbs, which we covered last week. He's written the book of Song of Solomon, which we get into next Wednesday. You'll want to be here for that. That's a good study. Um, but Ecclesiastes is a very unique book. It's a very unique book. In Proverbs, we see the wisdom of Solomon, but in Ecclesiastes, we kind of see the foolishness of Solomon. So that's the contrast that we see here. It's very interesting. Solomon would have most likely written the book of Proverbs kind of midway through his life as he's growing in the Lord, as he's just excelling in this wisdom, as he's living as his king and exercising this wisdom in the kingdom. He would have written Ecclesiastes later in his life here as he looked back on his life and, and all the experiences he's been through because Solomon for a time drifted from the Lord. In fact, it tells us that in God's word that, that he married many wives, right? Remember, 700 wives, 700 concubines. This guy didn't have much time for wisdom after all that, right? Um, but so here he is, he's married. And it says that, that these women, these foreign wives, kind of, you know, led him into idolatry and away from the Lord. So that's the crazy thing, that despite all the wisdom that Solomon had, and he still wasn't wise enough to see that this is folly. I, I don't want to venture down this road. This is not the way of the Lord how we need to guard ourselves of these things. So Solomon drifted from the Lord later in his life and he began to experience life just living after pleasures and the pursuit of just, you know, 
the, the flesh and all that the world had to offer. And he traveled down the path of, of science, philosophy, of pleasure, of achievement, religion, power, materialism, and fame. He literally wanted to just experiment with everything that was out there to see how can this add to my life? What can this do for me? And so Solomon is a man that lived after all of these pursuits. And then he contemplated the value of hard work and long life and a large family, a good name. And the book of Ecclesiastes now is really ultimately his findings in all those things. What did this do for me? How did this help or how did this not help? And so he writes Ecclesiastes to say, here's my experience now going out into the world and living after all these things. And here's what I discovered in it. I think this is a great help for us because I think many times a lot of us can be in that place where we're thinking, I wonder what it'd be like if I could just have this, if I could just experience that, if I just had, well, Solomon did it for us and he's gonna reveal to us that it was all empty. It's all empty. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes can even take a bit of a, a negative tone because it, it's Solomon writing about these things and he just found that it had nothing for him. It was empty. It's almost like there's this pessimistic attitude regarding the things of this life. And some scriptures in Ecclesiastes seem to contradict what is even said in other parts of the Bible. But understand that this is all now the retelling of man's discoveries in the world. In the world. Not in the Lord, but in the world. Okay? And he's just simply retelling his journey and stating what he's come to know. And it was this, that there was no pleasure apart from the Lord. There was no value in anything in the world apart from the Lord. That's what he comes to see. And, and so we're going to see some, some common words and phrases being used in the book of Ecclesiastes. First of all, we're going to see this word vanity. It's used 38 times in this book. It's an obscure word, which means vapor or emptiness or, or futility. All right? One language professor said, it's whatever is left after you break a soap bubble. You can blow a little, you know, how kids, they go on the outside and they blow the, the, the bubbles, right? And they just float through the air. And you're looking at that and you're like, oh man, I'm going to grab And you grab it, just nothing, gone. That's vanity. That's what, what Solomon is kind of referring to as vanity. It's, it's, it's just emptiness. It's like a vapor. It just, it seems like there's something there. But when you get it, it's got nothing. And Solomon would describe his daily life's toil as vanity, empty, meaningless, Another term he likes to use is under the sun. <laughs> That's used 29 times in Ecclesiastes. And this helps us to see Solomon's pessimistic attitude because he's viewing all things with this earthly perspective. He's looking at what's going on under the sun, but yet not beyond the sun. What's, what's out there beyond the things that I see right here materially? So Solomon experimented here with life apart from God. Like I said, he tried to keep God out of the picture and he saw clearly it was all meaningless. Solomon is not the only man who tried to find meaning in life apart from God. Other, other brilliant men have tried and came to the same conclusion. George Bernard Shaw once moaned, he said this, life is a series of inspired follies. A French proverb reads, reads life is an onion, when it's peeled, there's nothing left and one cries the whole time peeling it. <laughs> Rabbi Shalom Aliakam once wrote, life is a blister on top of a tumor and a boil on top of that. Man, that's a pessimistic outlook there, isn't it? 
Those are not very encouraging or, or positive observations. But if, if we were only living for this life and for the things in this world, I think you too would be a, a pessimist. You too would have an outlook like that. What's the point of all this? Well, another term that Solomon likes to use is this term grasping for the wind. It's used nine times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Trying to enjoy life in the temporal pleasures and pursuits of this world. For Solomon, it was like grasping for the wind. Grasping for the wind. There was no substance to it. You couldn't grab onto anything that was lasting. That's why Solomon would say, it's all vanity. There just isn't any hope outside of God. It's a, it's a grasping for the wind. It's it's thinking that there's something there that's going to help, that's going to have an effect in your life, and you try to just contain it or hold it, grab it, and it's nothing. It's grasping for the wind. There's nothing there. Well, thankfully, we're going to see in the book here, it's not going to be a, a, a full downer of a night looking at this man's woes and problems and, and hopelessness. That's not what this book is all about. It's a great deal of it, but we will see that Solomon is indeed going to turn back to the Lord. He's going to write and express again that though there's no hope under the sun and in this world, there's hope beyond this world. Now, in his unfolding message of the Bible, G. Campbell Morgan perfectly summarizes Solomon's outlook. He says this, this man had been living through all these experiences under the sun, concerned with nothing above the sun, until there came a moment in which he had seen the whole of life and there was something indeed over the sun. It is only as a man takes account of that which is over the sun as well as that which is under the sun that things under the sun are seen in their true light. And so it is. You may have felt at times like there's nothing new under the sun. So what's the point of it all? Why bother doing anything if it's all vanity anyways as it so apparently seems oftentimes? Well, it may be true that there's nothing new under the sun it's also true that there's new life in the Son, S-O-N, in the Son, Jesus Christ. And when He becomes the center of your life and your life is wrapped up in Him and grounded in Him, then things become a lot less confusing and begin to have a lot greater purpose in what you're doing and how you're living and what you're living for. Life under the sun, certainly much, much vanity and meaningless but life in the sun is where it's at. And that's where Solomon ultimately looks to kind of draw us here in the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and, and that's a very important truth to discover. Because I think most people have at one time grappled with that question. What's the purpose of it all? What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? I'm sure many people have asked that question at some point in their life. Every philosopher, theologian, professor, student, or parent has asked that question, what's the purpose of life? Well, this is why the book of Ecclesiastes is important. Because Solomon has been through it all. He's seen it all. He's experienced it all. And now he kind of lets us know what our response to these things should be. So the book here, it gets its name from the title that Solomon gives himself in the first verse, like we read, the preacher. The Hebrew word is koheleth, and it's the title given to an official speaker who calls an assembly. So the, the Greek word now for assembly is ecclesia, and that's where we get the title for the book Ecclesiastes, because Solomon is essentially calling for the assembly to gather and to hear 
his findings on what he has ultimately discovered in life and the meaning of life. And so that's where we get the name Ecclesiastes from. Here's an outline that we're going to be kind of tracking through as we go through this book here. We're going to see the problem declared, chapters 1 to 2, the problem discussed in chapters 3 to 10, and then in chapter 11 is kind of where we see that turning point here now in Solomon's life and perspective, and we'll see the problem decided. So the problem declared, the problem discussed, and the problem decided. Let's look at chapter 1, and we're going to we're going to really kind of just go through a lot of chapter one here and, and really just kind of get us an idea of, of where Solomon's at, what he's dealing with, some of the things that he's writing about here. And then we'll skip through and look at some other portions of other chapters in, in the book of Ecclesiastes. It says in verse one, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Really, no, on, tell us how you really feel, Solomon. It, he lays it out there pretty thick there, doesn't he? Vanity of vanities. Verse three, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Solomon has realized here in all, or that if all we do, we're just, you know, doing it for ourselves. Well, what do we then really profit from it? Where does it lead us and where does it ultimately end? See, if man is looking to find satisfaction in the world and through the things of the world and, and ultimately through his own labor as what Solomon is writing about here, if he's looking just to find satisfaction through the things that he's doing in this world, well, then he's going to be sadly disappointed. If indeed he's doing it all apart from God and that's what Solomon is writing about. This is where he's been at. He's doing all these things apart from God without really being in relationship with God. And he's finding it very disappointing, unsatisfied, empty, meaningless. There's no stable foundation for people of this world to build on under the sun is what he's getting at here. And you know what? You, you will often find yourself just going through that endless cycle. Working for money, getting money to buy food. You buy food so you'll be healthy. You need to be healthy so you can work to buy food to eat and be healthy to work. It just keeps repeating itself, right? Just goes in a circle. It's a treadmill of life. And if you aren't living with the perspective that we live for God, not to work, eat, and be healthy, then you will wonder, then you will wonder what the purpose of it all is. There's great misery when you live a life without purpose or where life doesn't really make sense. It's just, it's a struggle. You're going, what, why am I doing this? What's the point of all of this? It was, all, it was all meaningless toil, according to Solomon here, in verse 3. If indeed it's apart from God. And that's what Solomon wants to make aware. It's a purposeless life apart from God. Solomon here next gets into some examples from nature and life in general to express that, again, endless cycle of which seems to continue on without change. Solomon seems to be wrestling with the question, what's really the point of it all? Look at verse four. One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor, Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. 
So Solomon is observing nature and he's seeing that everything is just working, working, it's doing its thing and just moving around. But why? These things are just simply repeating their cycle, yet nothing really changes. And that was a frustrating thing for Solomon to observe. It was the same frustration Solomon was having living his life apart from God. He's going, what's the point? It just feels like I'm on this circular kind of thing where there just seems to be no end and no point of it all. Solomon maintains that, that, that meaning and security cannot be found in nature alone. If everything is endlessly cyclical, how can we break out of the temporal circle into a state that leads somewhere? That's kind of where Solomon's at. And he says there that the eye is not satisfied with seeing. See, we're not going to be fully content just in the things that we see around us or the things we may listen to. There's great beauty all around us, but they cannot be fully enjoyed apart from attributing them to the creator. See, within all this, Solomon, if he was living for God, he would have realized, God, this is, there's just beauty in what you've done here. It's incredible what you've done, but all Solomon could see is, what's the point of it all? They're just moving, going to their place. The sun rises, the sun sets, the river's going to the sea, it flows out this way, the winds blow here, then the winds turn and blow there. What's, what's the point of it all? But he was failing just to comprehend the greatness of the creator in all of that. Look at verse nine. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. So all of nature just continues in that cycle as we've been seeing. So Solomon comments that there really isn't anything new then under the sun. It just keeps going through its motion. It keeps continuing in its pattern. Every new idea then is just really a, a reshaping of an old idea according to Solomon. Everything we see around us has already been, he's saying. And it's been said that the ancients have stolen all of our good ideas. That kind of sums up Solomon's perspective, right? The reason things may seem new is that we oftentimes just forget about what came before us. We forget that that had already happened before us. He says there in verse 7, there's no remembrance of former things. That's why, why anything might just seem new, but it really isn't. And our lives and accomplishments, Solomon says, are soon going to be forgotten by the next generation. And it doesn't even take another generation to really forget accomplishments. I mean, who can tell me who won this, the Stanley Cup in 2012? You have to really think about it. Who won the NBA championship, you know, three years ago or, or four years ago? Or who won the, the Super Bowl? Like, you think about all of these people are striving for, living for, trying to gain. They have that moment. Yeah. Two years later, it's like, just kind of forgotten. It's like, man, I, yeah. What was the point of it all? Isn't it just meaningless is, is what Solomon's kind of getting at here. Now, before we kind of rag on Solomon for being such a pessimist and having this kind of stinky attitude, we need to remember that he's writing to reflect on all things under the sun, meaning in the world and apart from God. Looking under the sun and life is going to be a drag, but when we look to the sun and the life that he brings, it takes on new meaning because here's what we experience that's new in Jesus. We experience new creation we can walk in newness of life. We're given a new name and we'll enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. See, when we look above the sun 
to the Son of God, we have much to be thankful to or for and, and much to be looking forward to, much to be living in and enjoying now because the fact that he's made us a new creation in him. Well, praise the Lord for that. Here next, Solomon tries on education now and experience to see if this might solve the meaning of life. Verse 16, he says, I communed with my heart saying, look, I've attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Wow. Solomon wanted to experience what life was like in, in wisdom and in madness and folly. So he tried great knowledge and education. He desired to experience the opposite of wisdom, right? He, he, he ventured down the path of just madness and folly, perhaps an attempt to understand wisdom greater. He, he was willing to experience all facets of life to discover the very purpose of life. But what happened, it all ended up in futility and grasping for the wind, he says in verse 17. In fact, Solomon only fell, felt greater grief and sorrow as his knowledge increased. Maybe that was because he began to see how little he really knew. As he began to experience all these things, he began perhaps to realize that, man, these things really are, are empty. They don't bring anything from me. I, or, or realizing, man, I'm so small and insignificant. I really don't know very much. And it just increased sorrow ultimately for him. Now, there's much we cannot comprehend or understand. We understand that. But this is where God wants us to walk in faith, right? God does not reveal all things to us according to what he's doing or, or what he desires in our lives. And here's the thing. If God revealed everything to us, if he just laid out our entire life plan that he had for us, I think we too would oftentimes result in sorrow. Go, wait, what, God? You're going to do that in my life? You're going to allow me to go through this? You're going to let me experience that? Great knowledge could increase sorrow. And, and that's oftentimes the case where why God doesn't reveal everything for us at once. He wants us to walk in faith and to trust the Lord. And take each day as it comes to say, Lord, give me the strength for today. If he were to unfold what was going to be happening next week, well then, man, all of a sudden, that could potentially cripple us in, in fear and worry and wonder, Lord, how, how is that going to work out? But he says, just look to me, walk by faith, trust me. And he doesn't give us more than, than we're able to handle in a sense of laying it all out for us. He just wants us to walk by faith, to live by faith in him. So again, Solomon is making just various observations here. But he's coming to the wrong conclusions, right? That's the problem, apart from God. He's coming to the wrong conclusions on these things because he's facing all these things without looking to God. Now notice what we see repeated in these, these last few verses that we read there. He says, I commune with my heart in verse 16. Verse 17, he says, I set my heart. In other words, he's looking very inward in these things. Somebody once put it this way. Look around and be distressed. Look within and be depressed. Look to Jesus and be at rest. See, his gaze is all on the horizontal here. Solomon's looking all around him and it's distressing him. He starts to look inwardly. He's, he's contemplating his own heart and it's causing him to be depressed at these things. 
He's coming to the wrong conclusions of life. He needs more information. He needs a spiritual revelation. See, he's received this in part, but he's drifted away from it. He's eventually going to get it back, as we'll see at the end of the book, thankfully. And to get back to right focus on God and begin to make sense of it all. But how important it is that we just have that view that keeps us looking to Jesus. Despite what we might see or experience even in this life, how we need to walk by faith, keep our eyes on Jesus. Because looking outwardly, it's distressing. Looking inwardly, it's depressing. But when we look to Jesus, man, we just find rest in him. Chapter two, Solomon keeps exploring life now under the sun. Look at chapter two, verse 10. We read this, chapter two, verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There is no profit under the sun. That's those three main words or phrases that we brought up earlier. He hits them all right there at the end of verse 11. Vanity, grasping for the wind, nothing profitable under the sun. See, Solomon looked to many things in the world here. Many things by which he thought, maybe that would be the key to life. If I just had that, if I could just attain to that, maybe that would really bolster my joy in life. And so all through chapter two, he's listing all these things he went through. We didn't have read all those verses, but he looked at entertainment and laughter. It accomplished nothing for him. He turned to alcohol to see if that had any appeal and guidance in enjoying life. It didn't. He he had great building campaigns, houses, vineyards, orchards, sky's the limit for Solomon. He had many servants and great, greater possessions of herds and flocks than anyone else. He had great wealth, there was no one richer. He had great music at his disposal. I mean, just, it was like having, you know, unlimited downloads on iTunes. He could just ask for a song and there it was for him. There was no pleasure, understand this, there was no pleasure that Solomon didn't know. And here he is, the, the, one of the wealthiest men, the wisest, of, or for a time, wisest men, he had everything at his disposal. If Solomon wanted something, he could have it. So think about the things that Solomon is enjoying. I mean, I could say, man, I would love to try certain things, but I don't have the resources to try them. But Solomon, and by trying different things, I don't mean bad things, just don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about trying to experiment like Solomon did. But I, don't, I, I have limited resources. But Solomon, he says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Whatever he wanted, whatever he desired, he was able to have it. And so this man got to see what it was like to really live life according to this world, more than most people ever have had the chance. Yet when he looked back on all that he'd accomplished and all that he had, what does he say? There's no profit in it. There's no good. It was vanity, meaningless, futile. It was like chasing the wind. There was nothing Nothing lasting to show for it. There's nothing of substance to it. There's nothing that really benefited my life in it. That's what Solomon is saying. And that's the truth that Solomon wants to get across to his readers. Like I said earlier, how often do we think, if I can just acquire this, I'll be happy. If I can just have that, then life would really be satisfying. If my boat were just a little bigger, my car a little newer, my job paid just a little bit more, my house had a larger yard. We keep looking at what we don't have 
Instead of just being thankful for what we do have. Solomon does us all a huge favor here because people often think that happiness is gonna come with that next raise or finding a maid or in their next accomplishment. We think, if I just can get there, if I can just do this, if I can just have that, that's what's really gonna turn the corner for me and cause me to just really feel like, oh man, I've, I've made it, I'm feeling good about myself, life is good once again. If I can just do that. But Solomon does us all a favor by showing I've done it, I've been there, I've lived it, I've experienced it, I've tasted of it, and guess what? It doesn't satisfy. It's meaningless. It's empty. It's pointless. Ecclesiastes reminds us that someone has been where many are trying to go and it brought no profit or benefit. Augustine said this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That's where God wants us to be. Saying, Lord, I, I may not have that, I may not have this, but if I've got you, Lord, that's all I need. As Paul would say, you know, I've learned to have much and have little. But he says, this is it's important, just learn to be content in the Lord. That's what God desires for us to learn, just to be content in Him and to be at rest in Him. And when we do, that's when we're gonna find that, oh man, life is good. Life is a blessing. Well, Chapters one and two complete that first section of Ecclesiastes, the problem declared. Solomon's presented these, these different arguments that seem to prove that life is really not worth living. He talks about the monotony of life, the vanity of wisdom, the futility of wealth. He talks at the end of chapter two, we didn't get to it, but the, the certainty of death. And, and so his argument appears to be true. Again, if you're looking at life under the sun, from a human point of view. But when you bring God in the picture, everything changes. So far, Solomon has only reflected on the monotony of life. But he knows there's got to be more to life than this. And, and that's where he takes us in the next section, where we begin to see this problem discussed a little bit more. Chapter three. Some of you just need to go home and sing this chapter. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born. You guys know the song. You guys want to sing it, don't you? Okay. Church will lead us in that after. Okay. Turn, turn, turn. Okay. All right. Let's go to verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. It says in chapter 3, verse 9, What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. Basically, Solomon is wondering what Profit is there for a man in all of his hard work. The cycles of life, like we've seen, just keep rolling along. Some days we're building, others we're destroying. Some days are sad, some are, are happy, he's been talking about. Some days are fighting, some are peaceful. What, what profit is there in that kind of routine of life, this circular sort of life? But then Solomon seems to hint at, at the key to it all. He says, first of all, that all of our labor is God-given. God-given. See, God has blessed us with the ability to work and serve him. And, and all our service should be unto him. If we're working for our own pleasure, it's not going to be very satisfying because it's a God-given task that he's put before us. So if you're working then for the glory of God, every task that you are, 
are doing, you're going to be able to find pleasure in that because you're doing it to please and honor God. That's where our joy resides, living for his glory and service. He says there in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. He's made everything beautiful in its time. See, when we live for the Lord and with a desire to make him known, then we discover that everything is beautiful in his time. And and beautiful because God's behind it all. You know, when we go and and serve down in, in Mexico, right? We find ourselves in some conditions that wouldn't typically pass any health inspection up here. And we find ourselves working in the midst of all that. But when we go with the purpose of just shining our light for Jesus, then, then we get to see and experience just the, the beauty in, in the messiness. We get to experience that, that this is not just for them. It's not, it's not about us. It's about just ultimately glorifying God in all of this. And, and there's great beauty in that. Everything takes on a new meaning when we do it for the Lord and unto the Lord. That's why, why Paul would say a couple times in, in Philippians and, and in Colossians that whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. For you serve the Lord, you don't serve man. Do it unto the Lord. Everything becomes more beautiful when it is for the Lord. And not only that, but I love what Solomon says here in verse 11, that he has put eternity in their hearts. That's a great verse. He's put eternity in their hearts. Solomon is revealing here that we aren't just working for this life, Right? This life is not where we're to be searching for satisfaction or just putting our, our, our roots down in a sense where it's all about this life. There's more to this life here. This world can't satisfy because it's temporal. And God's made us for something far greater than just a temporary thing. He's put into us that eternal homing device in a sense. It's only when we see a greater goal for all that we do that we're going to find enjoyment and satisfaction in what we're doing. See, every person, I believe, has that instinctive understanding that there's more to come. I think that's why people fear death oftentimes, because they're not sure what's on the other side, what's awaiting them, or, or how to get to the other side for that matter. Eternity is stamped on their hearts. I think they realize that. And they don't want to face what's unknown to them. That's why it's important that we be those that are... are sharing the good news with people, letting them know that there's hope, that, that they can have peace of what is to come is through life in Jesus. And that too also means that we must live these lives by faith because we're not always sure what God is doing or how he's working, right? We need to trust him in a, on all these things. He sees everything from beginning to end and, and we don't, so let's let him be God and let us be those that simply follow him by faith and in obedience and trust. Because God accomplishes his purposes in his time. But it'll not be until we enter eternity that we begin to comprehend his total plan, that we'll begin to see what ultimately God was doing all through the midst of our lives. It won't be until we're in eternity that it all really then begins to make sense what God was doing. Well, here's some more highlights in the preceding chapters before we hit our last section. Life is truly monotonous when you're living self-centered, when, when life is kind of about you. That's what Solomon had been doing, right? But when you begin to live with a view of blessing others, it adds greater purpose. Look at what we read in chapter 4, verse 9. 
Chapter four, verse nine, he says this. And here Solomon begins to, to make some good sense finally. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for the labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, this may be a bit of a surprise to some here tonight, but did you know that you can accomplish more together than just yourself? Solomon gives five illustrations of how this is true. First of all, he says, completing a project takes quicker, right? Your, your labor is much, is much more uh, prompt, basically. They have a good reward for the labor, all right? A much better outcome, basically, is what he's saying. Secondly, you have a helper in case of emergency. Let's say you're building a house together and somebody slips off the roof and they're, they're hanging by the edge. Ah! If nobody else is there, they're working alone. Man, they might have a bit of a fall. But now you can call out, somebody's there to help you. So you're working together, somebody's there to help you. Thirdly, warmth, Solomon brings up. Now, in that time when you're traveling around, right, from town to town, you have to stop sometimes for the nights. Sometimes you'd have to sleep in the open air, maybe in a makeshift tent. Well, now when you've got somebody with you, a companion, a friend, guess what? Body heat. Is that a good thing? Body, you can, you can kind of lay down together and sort of have a blanket over you and just absorb a little bit more warmth. That's a good thing. You people that are married, you know what that's like. When you climb into bed and you're cold, what do you want to do? You want to grab a hold of your partner there and just warm up. My wife doesn't like that, but I do it anyways. Number four, protection. There's protection that, that helps you. Look at verse 12. Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. So somebody comes along and they're trying to rip you off, mug you, do whatever. You got somebody with you? Well, hey. You're going to be able to have two to fight against the one. And lastly, there's greater strength. A cord of three strands is not easily or quickly broken. In fact, the strength that it adds doesn't just double it, it multiplies it. Take two strands, put them together, greatly strengthens it. Add another one in there, and it just multiplies the strength that it's given there. And there's a great connection there that's Certainly true in marriage when you bring Jesus into your marriage or in any relationship for that matter. A, 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 three, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. There's great value in a friend, but when you bring Jesus into the middle of that, oh, how much more that just adds that strength and, and lends itself to just a greater, um, yeah, just a, a greater blessing in that. Chapter 5, verse 10, look over there. Chapter 5, verse 10 says this. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? Now Solomon here, not just the wisest person that ever lived, but arguably the most wealthiest that lived up until that time, he understood this all too well because riches will never bring satisfaction to a person. Materialism never brings the fulfillment that you think it should. 
Have you ever experienced that before? Rockefeller, one of the, the richest people in recent history, was asked, how much is enough? To which he replied, just one dollar more. One dollar more. In other words, he said, it'll never feel like it's enough. I'll always just want that one extra dollar. Such is the grip of, of materialism and covetousness. We desire something that we think is going to make us happy. And when we get it, guess what? We realize it's not satisfying. I just need a little bit more. Maybe I, maybe I get the new iPhone. That's going to really satisfy. I get the new iPhone, I'm like, ah, didn't really bring the, the joy I thought it would. Maybe a new case will be better. Put a new case on it. No, that just still doesn't really say. See, we constantly, if we're not sitting in that place again of just contentment, we're constantly striving for things to do for us what they can never do. Only the Lord can do that and bring that satisfaction and, and joy in life. Solomon said, when goods increase, so does the increase of things that eat them. Things like the tax man, larger bills, or friends even, who find out that you've got some money to spare. Hey, let's go hang out here. Let's, uh, let me share with you some of the things I'm going through. Right? They're always looking for a, a handout. There's, there's things that increase now that are looking to kind of take that from you. Riches don't always equate to a better life. So what profit is all these things? Solomon says, take a good look at what you've got. Enjoy it with your eyes because there's nothing lasting or truly helpful in these things for what really matters. What profit, he says at the end of verse 7, so what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? That's really all that you're going to enjoy out of it. Take a good look at it because it's not going to do anything for you that's really going to help you in the way that you need. Jesus said, Luke 12, verse 19 to 20, and I'll say to my soul, so you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, I'm fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then, those who, then whose will those things be which you have provided? We can try and just gain according to the things of this world, but those things aren't the things that matter. God says, what, what does it profit you if you have all those things and ultimately lose your soul? And you don't know when that time is up for you. Then all those things are going to be gone anyways. You're living for the wrong things if you're living for the things of this world under the sun. Solomon also says in verse 12 of chapter 5, he says, The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Now that's interesting, isn't it? The person that is making an honest day's wage and working hard is going to enjoy sleep at night. Whether he makes a little or a lot, he says, he's being diligent to make a living and to do it the right way, and there's peace in that. But Solomon says the one who's wealthy and has an abundance of riches is going to suffer sleepless nights. Why? Because he's worried about the stability of the stock market or whether somebody's going to try and, and rob him or take the money from him. Riches can leave you very stressed, full of anxiety. And as Solomon says, being robbed of sleep. At the age of 53, Rockefeller, the world's only billionaire at the time, earning about a million dollars a week, ended up becoming very sick. Became a guy that lived on crackers and milk. He could not sleep because of worry. But when he finally started to give some of that money away, his health changed radically. And he lived to celebrate his 98th birthday. See, it's okay 
to have the things that money can buy, provided you don't lose the things that money can't buy. That's the things that the Lord wants to do in you and through you and, and work in you. Money can be a stressful thing. Think about the many people that have, have won lotteries. And, it, and, it, and you can hear reports of people that have won lotteries and it just ruined their life. Ruined their life. I mean, I wouldn't mind trying that to see how I can do, but for a lot of people, it wasn't the answer they thought it would be. It wasn't the help they thought it would be. It ruined their life. That's what Solomon is getting at here, and he knows. He's lived it. He's experienced it. He's, he's had it. He's had it all. Look at chapter 6, verse 7. He says, All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. Here Solomon kind of puts it in perspective here, right? We put a lot of time and energy into doing one thing, feeding us physically, and that's not just talking of food, but that which feeds the flesh, ultimately. And yet none of these things on a physical, material level are ever going to satisfy the soul, the inner, eternal part of you. And it's important to nourish the soul. Soul food includes things like studying God's word, praying, fellowshipping, witnessing, discipleship, worship, all the like. That's something that exercises and strengthens the soul so that the flesh doesn't have as much control or influence in our lives. Solomon's saying, listen, the labor man, all the things that you're striving for, it's just feeding the flesh. But the soul never gets satisfied or strengthened in that. And it's important that we are making sure that we are, even as Paul would say in, in 1 Timothy, exercising ourselves into godliness feeding the soul, making sure that our, our, our spirit is being cared for. Well, Solomon gives us a little checklist to see how we're doing in these things in chapter 7, verse 2. Look at verse 2 of chapter 7. He says, Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to, to heart. Sorrow, he says, is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. He says the house of mourning is often better. Why? Because it's here that we take an undistracted look at life and death and we weigh the realities of eternity. You ever find that sometimes it's at funerals that's the best place to give an altar call? Because it's here that people are sitting here grappling with what's next faced with their mortality, wondering, what's going to happen to me when I die? That's why Solomon says, it's here in the house of mourning that's actually better than going to the house of feasting. Because here you begin to get a proper perspective of things. Here you begin to really evaluate what's important. Psalm chapter 90, verse 12 says, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, not living this life of just, you know, full-on abandonment as though there's no care for what's to come. Teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. That we might know how to properly live in these things. So Solomon says, sorrow is better than laughter. There's greater introspection 
about life and what we're living for than there is in foolish pleasure. Sober reflection should be preferred to levity. This is what Solomon is getting at here in this passage. Now, don't read into this that we're to be walking around now as, as a collective bunch of Debbie Downers, right? No reflection on Debbie. Debbie's here in our midst. But this is not about going, oh, okay, we're just going to be down. Let's just be sorrowful and all that we do. That's not what we're getting at here. That's, don't get me wrong here. Because that should never be the way that a Christian is living their life. Because we of all people should be filled with the joy of Jesus. That's a fruit of the Spirit. That should be something that's very tangible in what we're doing. But Solomon, Solomon's already written in, in Proverbs 15, 13, a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. So again, we're not saying that as believers, we should be sorrowful and everything because no, it's, it's a cheerful, it's a merry heart that makes us very cheerful. And, and we should be that way. But what Solomon's getting at here is that we need to have that right perspective. We need to make sure that we, we understand what life is all about and that we're living it the right way. Because Solomon hadn't been doing that. And he needed to go through that, that time of, uh, of sorrow, going through that house of mourning. Because it was there that he began to realize, yeah, what is the point of this all? It is all vanity apart from God. Chapter 8, verse 14. Solomon says here, there is vanity which occurs on earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Verse 15, so I commended enjoyment because a man will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life which God gives him under the sun. Or sorry, I misread that here. Because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry, for this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. Verse 16, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, when a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Once more, here Solomon questions now the seeming contradictions that are under the sun. Just men, he says, were getting the fruit of the wicked, and wicked men were getting the fruit of the righteous. It was it seemed contradictory to him. In other words, it, it was vanity. It was meaningless to Solomon. He's like, what's the point of it all? If wicked men, wicked men can pro prosper that way, and yet righteous men get the fate of the wicked at times. So Solomon's conclusion is to simply just enjoy the things that he has. Whatever God does enjoy, it's the gift of God. Solomon reasoned that even the wisest man couldn't fully understand God's ways. And it's true, we may not understand all that God does, but when we're living life under the sun, and for, or sorry, above the sun, and we're living life for the Lord, and guess what? It's a life of faith. Knowing that God does all things well, it doesn't have to be vanity, but rather victory in Jesus. And as Solomon comes to the conclusion of this interesting and unique book, he finishes up with some good words of encouragement and challenge here. 
In Solomon's mind, even though life may be meaningless under the sun, which it is, it was still a life that should be lived to its fullest now. Just going for it. Being bold, stepping out. So in these last two chapters, we look at some ways that we can do that. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1. says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and in the evening, do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Here's what Solomon is coming to realize we just don't know the ways of God or what he's going to do. And if we're basing everything off of the things that we see before us, then guess what? We're never going to get anything done. We'll always find a reason to say, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't go there. I shouldn't venture in here. There'll always be something that will keep you from doing that. There will always be an excuse, always a reason not to do it. There'll always be something that could stand in your way of moving forward in action and activity. If we're waiting for perfect conditions, guess what? They may never come. So what's Solomon saying here? He's saying, step out in faith and trust the Lord. Cast your bread upon the waters. That was that idea of, uh, of, of sending product or an investment upon a ship and sending it back home or having somebody do it. And you send it on the ship, guess what? You don't know if you're ever going to see it again. It, it might get taken from another person, pirated by another person. That ship might go down in the waters and all your, your product destroyed. You don't know. But Solomon says, just go ahead, cast it upon the waters. If you'll find after many days, trust the Lord. Just rely upon what God is able to do. He says, he who observes the wind, verse 4, isn't going to sow. If you go out on your farm and you're like, man, it's time to, you know, plant some crops here. And you look and you go, oh, man, it's looking pretty windy. Ah, I don't think this is really going to settle in the ground. It's not going to stick. Man, I better just wait. There'll, see, there will always be something that you could find that will keep you from being active and stepping out in faith. Solomon says, if you're waiting for the perfect conditions, you'll probably just keep waiting and waiting. Don't worry about that. Step out, trust the Lord. Rely upon God. Look at your life and ask, what's being held back by your own refusal to step out in faith? Don't allow your comfort for the easy path to hinder what God may want to do in your life. I think so often we miss out on seeing God do great things because we're not willing to step out and trust Him. And here's the great thing, guys. God never needs perfect conditions to do what He wants to do. You ever think we do that with the Lord tonight? Well, I don't, think the, I don't think God would do that. I don't think God wants to work that way. How often do we 
do we underestimate the power and the ability of God? How often do we stop ourselves from stepping up because we think, oh no, I don't, I don't think God would do that. No, that's too much. It's too much. No, I'll do something different. And we underestimate God and we, we don't, we're not willing to step out and say, God, I know this might not look good or perfect. It's not perfect conditions, but God, you don't need that. You don't need that to accomplish your, your work. He's just looking for willing vessels that he can work through. People that are on the move, ready to step out and trust him. That's all God needs. Are you willing to be a willing vessel that God can work through? Are you worried about all the what ifs? Or are you saying, God, those are nothing for you. I'm gonna step out. Look at verse six again. In the morning, sow your seed, and in the evening, do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. I'd rather step out and take chances and take risks and just see what God will do than sit back and do nothing and not give an opportunity for God to do something. You don't know what God's gonna do. And guess what? You don't have to know before you step out. Step out and say, God, I don't know what you want to do here, but I'm going to step out. I'm going to trust you for something. If, if you do something, great. If not, well, it's all good. I'd rather live that adventurous life trying than sitting back and doing nothing at all. That's what Solomon is coming to realize here. That's a great attitude. Well, we get to the end of the book here now. Chapter 12. And, and Solomon just comes right to the end of it all now in verse 13. And he says this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's what Solomon came to realize after he's experimented with everything in this world and all that, that life has to offer under the sun. He's experimented, he's seen it, he's, he's, he's gone through it all. And he says, guys, this is what it comes down to. Fear God, keep his commandments. In other words, again, just like we saw in in. Proverbs, where Solomon talked about that fear of God, he's saying just have that right reverential awe of God. Just honor him. Live for him. Value him, know how great he is. Live in that humility of him and, and then obey him. That, Solomon says, is man's all. It's really quite simple, isn't it? We get hung up on a lot of things. But here's all that God asks of us, just to fear him and follow him. Live for him. And, and all that other stuff begins to find its place in your life as God begins to direct you and lead you and fit those things in. But guess what? We don't need a lot of other stuff. 
when we have God. Because we begin to find that He's everything we need. He's our satisfaction. He's our peace. He's our joy. He's our life. I don't need to chase after those things under the sun when I'm looking above the sun and to the sun, Jesus Christ, and finding my life in him. I don't need all that other stuff. I don't need to chase after those things because it is grasping for the wind. It's vanity. All those things under the sun have no value apart from the Lord. So Solomon says, this is it. Just fear God, keep his commandments. Because God is gonna bring everything into, into judgment. We're gonna stand before him one day. We're gonna give an account. And we're not gonna give an account for what we have and what we've earned. We're gonna give an account for how we've lived our life for him. And every secret thing, good or evil, gets exposed. So Solomon realizes, man, I've done a lot of things <laughs> are not going to be great before God, but when I'm living for him, fearing him, following him, that's all that matters. That takes care of everything else. So may the book of Ecclesiastes here just continually remind us of that simple truth. Here's some things that we can take home with us here tonight. Again, fear God. Understand that, that God is great and we are not. It's not about us, it's about him. So live submitted to him. And you do so because you know his ways are best. And to veer off from them is ultimately to our detriment. Hey, you wanna know why that's true? Because Solomon reveals that to us. He has lived it. He's done it. He's done what a lot of people are trying to do. And he's here to tell you, it's not worth it. Fear God. And then obey God. That's what will always follow, proper fear of God. We can easily drum up a lot of emotion in our experiences or walk with God. But unless we're keeping his commandments, we're ultimately missing the point. Just follow him. Obey him. And then prepare to give an account. Because one day you'll stand before God and give an account for your life. Life is a God-given opportunity and privilege, and it's meant to be lived for his glory, so don't waste it. Someone once said, life without God is empty, but death without God is a calamity. So live in a way where you're ready to stand before God and say, here I am, and you're ready to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. God's not looking just for success or gain. He's looking for faithfulness. Have you been faithful? Have you followed him? Have you honored him? If so, that, then you have nothing to worry about. Then you're prepared to stand before him, give an account, say, I'm standing in the sun. Not under the sun, but I'm standing in the sun. So God, I'm ready for eternity. That's what it's all about there. All right, Ecclesiastes. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for our time tonight here just to look at this book into, you see what a, an interesting and unique book it is, how it's written, what it communicates to us, and what it often communicates to us in a negative way, but it's there to be that reminder for us to say, yeah, these things in this world are ultimately pointless, unprofitable when it's not centered in you. And so Lord, I pray that 
tonight, we might just kind of perhaps recalibrate our lives and our heart if we've veered off, if we've been distracted, if we've been living for the wrong things, or if we've been fearing stepping out and trusting you for things. If we've been held back in any way, Lord, I pray that we would right now just come back to you. And in fact, let's just take a couple minutes just in this silence here now just to take that time with the Lord and to ask him and ask him to reveal to you if there's things that you need to surrender to the Lord and things you need to pray through right now to get yourself back in the right perspective now in your life with the Lord. Let's take a couple minutes and do that here.